The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Make sure that we're in fellowship, that we're filled with the Holy Spirit and ready to take in God's Word. This is a tremendous privilege that we have as believers, and it's such a great provision of God, a great provision of God, that we do not have to go through any sort of ritual. We do not have to go through any, any kind of emotional gymnastics in order to uh, be in fellowship with the Lord or to deal with our sins. It is just a simple grace provision. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So before we begin, we have a few moments of silent prayer for private confession of sin to make sure we're uh, ready for study of God's Word this morning. So let's begin in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful privilege we have as believer priests to gather together to worship you this morning through the study of your word. Father, as we look at these important principles that you have given us in Galatians 3 related to understanding our so great salvation and the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, we pray that you would help us to understand these principles, that they would in turn motivate us in our uh, spiritual growth and our service to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 3. Now, we had a brief hiatus last Sunday from Galatians because we were concluding our creation conference. So we need to reorient ourselves a little bit to what's taking place in this epistle. The theme of Galatians is justification by faith, understanding the entire doctrine of how we are made right before God. Remember, we have to understand the principle of God's integrity and the principle of His essence. God is absolute righteousness, and He is perfect justice. Together, these two concepts are expressed in the Greek by the word dikaios. Sun- well, I'm just not spelling well at all this morning. Dikaiosune. D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E. Dikaiosune. This one word expresses those two concepts. The righteousness of God is the standard by which he evaluates everything. His justice is the application of his character. His love is the motivation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And all of this is expressed toward man through his policy of grace. Now, the word dikaiosune is the same root from the Greek decay, di from which we get the Greek word dikaios, D-I-K-A-I-O, 
S, which is the noun for justification. So justification literally means to be made or to be declared righteous. It is a judicial term, so it relates to the righteousness and justice of God. And the issue is, how does a, is a believer, how is a person, not just a believer, but how is a human being who lacks the perfect righteousness of God made righteous in the standing of God? Now, the human viewpoint solution always relates to religion, which is man trying to gain the approval of God through his own efforts. Ritual, through meaningless activities, that somehow is designed to gain God's attention and to gain his, his approval and approbation, and through human works, human emphasis on human morality. And what happened in Galatia is that when the Apostle Paul came and brought them the gospel, they responded. The Galatians were from the Celtic tribes that had migrated uh, eastward from France. That France is called Gaul. The, many of the early languages didn't have vowels in them. They just spelled their names with, with consonants. So, uh, and sometimes when a word would go from one language to another, a G would harden to a K sound. A K would soften to a G sound. So Gaul, GL, Galatians, GLT, all these tribes, the Celts, were all, all related. And these Celtic tribes moved uh, eastward, migrated down, tried to go into Greece and were repelled. Their invasion was repelled there and they moved on into Asia Minor and settled there. And so there, there are these Gentile tribes that are rather warlike and they've settled down a little bit. And when Paul comes to teach these Gentiles about Christ, he gives them the gospel of faith alone and Christ alone. Well, it's not long before Paul is followed in his travels by a group that we call Judaizers. These were Jews who came along and said, well, faith alone and faith in Christ is fine, but it's not really faith alone. You have to add something. You have to add obedience to the Mosaic law, specifically the sign of the Mosaic law, which is circumcision, in order to be saved. And you have to add the Mosaic law if you are truly going to experience all that God has for you in the spiritual life. So sanctification was also based on the law. In chapter 2, Paul addresses the issue of justification by faith, specifically in verse 16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law, since by the works of law shall no flesh be justified. Then in chapter 3, he shifts gears. In chapter, chapter 2, he's focusing on what we call phase 1 salvation. Salvation has three phases. Phase one takes place at the cross where we are saved from the eternal penalty of sin. Phase two is the spiritual life where through learning doctrine, renovation of the mind, renovation of our thinking, reformation of our thinking, we mature from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. And in that process, we are saved from the present power of the sin nature in our life. Phase three is salvation where we, in heaven where we glorification where we are saved from the presence of sin. And absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, we have eternity with Him apart from sin nature. So these are the three phases of salvation. Well, in chapter 2, we dealt with phase 1, which is called justification. Phase 2 is salvation. He raises the question in 3, 3, Are you so foolish? Don't you just love the way the Apostle Paul is so 
kind and so gentle and just expresses himself with that wonderful, warm, fuzzy attitude that we all expect from pastors. He just comes right out and says, you stupid, idiotic Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being matured, not perfected, that's a bad translation, are you now being brought to maturity or completion in your spiritual life by means of the sin nature? And the implication there is you can act very good and have a tremendous amount of morality, but its source is the sin nature. And this is one of the greatest problems that we face in Christianity today. And that is that many, many people do not understand what Paul is talking about right here in Galatians chapter 3. And instead of uh, following biblical principles for spiritual growth, which is uniquely in this church age a product of God the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Many people do not understand that, and rather than trying to live a life that is based on the power of the Holy Spirit, they have confused morality with spirituality, and they're out there trying to reform their lives from the outside in, emphasizing conformity to an external moral code rather than developing a life based on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment walk by means of the Holy Spirit, which we'll get to in Galatians chapter 5, which produces a unique spiritual life. And the consequence is that many people think, well, doctrine doesn't work, and this doesn't work, and that doesn't work, and usually, eventually, after a period of time, they collapse in their spiritual life because it's based on nothing more than legalism and self-righteousness. And so Paul really castigates the Galatians here for trying to just cover everything up with an external form of morality, legal obedience, and trying to gain maturity through works of the law. So he's going to develop an argument, an argument that, that's going to draw a parallel between justification and sanctification. These are two distinct works of God in the believer's life. Justification takes place at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. Sanctification is the process that takes place afterwards. When you confuse these two, you end up in one of two camps theologically. You're going to end up in, if you're an evangelical, you're going to end up in the lordship camp. Lordship is the idea that I have to make Jesus Christ Lord of my life before I can be saved. I have to commit myself to Jesus, that somehow at the point of salvation, I'm going to bring something to God. Well, as a spiritually dead, trashed out unbeliever as far as God's concerned, when all my righteousnesses are as filthy rags, God really doesn't care what or want anything from us. He has done it all. I'm reminded of that, uh, really, I think, in some ways, a tragic evangelism campaign back in the early or late 70s uh, that, that Campus Crusade, I think, conducted called I Found It. And everybody had the I Found It bumper stickers on their car. Some of you remember those. And the issue isn't that I found it. It's that Jesus found me. It's a very man-centered gospel approach that they had. It's not what I bring to God. It's that Jesus Christ paid it all. I don't do anything. Lordship confuses the two, so you don't know if you're justified unless you see sanctification. This is their basic error. How do you know you're saved? What's the ultimate basis, the ultimate basis for your assurance of salvation? It's going to be what they call fruit, production. That if I don't see good deeds in your life that fit a certain pattern, then you're not really saved and you didn't have the kind of faith that saved. You just had a superficial faith 
But as we've seen, especially in our study in the Gospel of John, that it has nothing to do with the biblical concept of faith. They, by confusing justification and sanctification, they really slip into the ancient error that has dominated Roman Catholicism for the last 1,500 years. And that is this confusion of the two, making justification and sanctification almost identical and progressive. How do you know if you're justified? By looking at your sanctification. These are two distinct works. Justification takes place at a moment in time when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. After justification, this is the problem that both groups have, is that after the moment you're saved, you still have the same sin nature that you had prior to salvation. That means that anything you could do before you were saved, you can do after you're saved. And in many cases, you're going to be much worse after you're saved than you were before because now you're a target in the angelic conflict. And because you're a target in the angelic conflict and you've gone into an intensified stage of spiritual warfare, you're, you may even discover that some, some temptations and some sins and some proclivities in your life that were never there prior to salvation. So by failing to understand the relationship between justification and sanctification, which is the subject of Galatians 3 and 4, you always slip into legalism and externalism. So Paul builds his case, he builds his argument, and he goes back to one of the foundational episodes in all of human history. And that has to do with Abraham's salvation. Abraham is probably with the exception of the cross, the only exception being the cross. Abraham and the events in the life, life of Abraham are the most important events in all of Scripture. The Abrahamic covenant is foundational to understanding anything and everything that occurs in history and prophecy. If you don't understand what happens in Genesis 12, Genesis 14, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and everything that's built upon that, then we can never understand anything else that happens in Scripture or why it happens because that lays the basis for everything else. <coughs> Excuse me. So Paul goes back to Abraham. And he says in verse 6, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And we saw that this was a quote from Genesis 15:6. We looked at Genesis 15:6, and we saw that even though that occurred in the life of Abraham, let's draw out a timeline here for the life of Abraham, which we'll come back to again in a little bit. Here's the life of Abraham. We'll put a line here for 2000 B.C. Now, Abraham's life roughly fell in this time period from about 2100 to about 1960, 1970 B.C. Now, for, for about 70 years, he lived in Ur of the Chaldees. He was from the third dynasty of Ur. And he was an aristocrat. He was wealth, a wealthy uh, businessman, landowner, uh, raised cattle and sheep and all sorts of livestock. And he had a large family and a large number of servants that he was responsible for. Somewhere about his around his 70th, 60th to 70th birthday, God came to him in, right at the end of Genesis 11, the beginning of Genesis 12, and he made certain promises to Abraham and told Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees and he would take him to a land that he was going to give to Abraham and to his descendants. Now, he left Ur and went up to Haran and eventually ended up in, in Canaan, which was the land that God had promised him. And God appeared to him 
made him specific promises, again, related to the fact that God would give him a child, even though he was past the years of childbearing, and his wife was beyond the years of childbearing. And that's when we find the text in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God. But Abraham wasn't believing that promise of God at that moment in time. And we did a little detail work on the Hebrew there, and we saw that it was a vowel plus a perfect tense, which indicate that Abraham had already believed God sometime back here. While he was in Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham came to an understanding that God had made a promise that he would save man through the coming of a Messiah. And because Abraham had believed God and had grown spiritually back here, God made certain promises to Abraham and brought him out. So when it says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him or imputed to him as righteousness, the imputation of plus R to Abraham took place before Genesis 12. Now, that's we've got to understand that if we're going to understand the things we're going to look at this morning. So, Abraham, who is minus R like every single unbeliever, and minus R cannot, can do nothing to gain the approval of God, but he understands that God has made a promise to, to all mankind to provide a Savior. And so he believes that promise, trusts God, and God in turn imputes to him his own perfect righteousness. That's what that means when it says God reckoned to him, reckoned it to him as righteousness. So Paul goes back to Genesis 15:6 and begins to build this case. And in verse 8 he says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. Now, look at what is connected there. It's very important. We're going to start. I want to point out how Paul, the context here, how Paul defines his terms in the context. All the nations shall be blessed in you. That is a quote from Genesis 12.3. It's the third part of the Abrahamic covenant. But he says here, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles Okay, here's the concept. Justification. Justification of the Gentiles equals what in this passage? Equals the blessing. So the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant is being defined, for, for Gentiles, is being defined as justification. Now when we get down to verse 14, which is the passage we're looking at this morning, we're going to run across this same term again, the blessing of Abraham. And we have to look at the context to understand what that term means. It's not just any sort of generic blessing. It's not just some sort of vague spiritual heritage. But it is specifically defined in context as justification by faith. And then in verse 9, Paul says, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So Gentiles then participate in the blessing to Abraham when they put their faith alone in Christ alone. Now, his argument develops starting in verse 10. There he says he shifts from talking about the blessing to talking about condemnation. Condemnation is related to sin and is revealed by the law. Verse 11, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not a faith on the contrary. He who practices them shall live by them. Verse 10, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. 
So the law is the basis for condemnation, not justification. And then we concluded our study two weeks ago by looking at the doctrine of redemption in verse 13. That comes from the Greek word ex agorazo, which means to purchase out of the market. In context here, we would say the market is the slave market, the slave market of sin. Every single believer, every single human being is born in the slave market of sin. We'll draw a square here, SMS. Every single believer is born in the slave market of sin. I mean, excuse me, every single human being. And when Christ died on the cross, he paid a penalty. That's, if you want to get the core meaning of exagorazo, of redemption, redemption is always directed towards sin. It means to pay a price. Whether you're talking about the word group agorazo, exagorazo, lutrao, apolutrao, any of those word groups in the Greek that are translated redemption, it always has the idea of paying a price payment for something. Get that in your mind. Whenever you think of redemption, you need to think of payment. So Christ pays a price. As a result of that, the shackles come off. Sin has been paid for. So that sin is no longer the issue. Get that out of your mind. Sin is not the issue for the unbeliever. Sin is not the issue for the believer. The penalty has been paid not double jeopardy. God is not going to come back and ask you to pay a penalty that's not been paid. The issue is whether or not that has been applied, whether or not that payment has been accepted by the individual. Christ redeemed us. It says he purchased us out of the slave market of sin from the curse of the law. The curse of the law is condemnation, eternal condemnation for those who do not have plus R. See, the issue at salvation is not that we have sinned, but we still have minus R. The issue for the unbeliever is that he's got to solve the problem of minus R. Sin's been paid for. The issue is he doesn't have the kind of righteousness necessary to have a relationship with God. That's what happens in justification with imputation of righteousness. At the last judgment in Revelation 20, the issue is that condemnation, not for sin, sin's not going to be brought up there. They're judged for their work. They're judged for their works. Do their works add up to the perfect righteousness? God's going to look down. He's going to see this individual. He's going to say, well, let's see what your works are like. You're going to add up all the works. Lay them all out there. He's got piles and piles of good works. This person's contributed to every good cause, every good deed, helped every little old lady across the street, done everything they possibly could do. And yet, when it's all added up, God says, it's minus R. All your righteousness is as filthy rags. Here's my standard way up here. You fail. The only way to get perfect righteousness is as a gift from God. Okay, that's what we concluded last week. Christ purchased us from the curse of the law. He became a curse for us. He paid the price for us. Why? Verse 14. In order that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, this is an incredibly significant verse. Galatians 3.14. Incredibly significant. The doctrinal implications of this verse are profound. Now, for some of you, as I go into this in detail, it may just kind of slip over your head a little bit as to why this is important. 
But to, we live in an era when the implications of this are not understood by very many people. So we have to take some time to understand this because if you want to understand the divine perspective of history, which means if you want to understand what's going on today in our world, if you want to understand prophecy, if you want to understand why God has done what he has done in human history, if you want to ask just to answer just about any question you might ask of the, of the Scriptures, you've got to understand what's going on in this passage. This is fundamental. So we're going to take it apart bit by bit and piece by piece because if I don't, if I answer this too generally, then three or four people are going to come up and they're going to say, well, what about this and what about that? So we have to take a look at this because it is so foundational to understanding everything that is in the Bible. So let's look at the doctrine of the Abrahamic covenant. The doctrine of the Abrahamic covenant. We come to this verse and it says, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Now, what is the blessing of Abraham? We have already seen in context that the blessing of Abraham is justification by faith. That the Gentiles can receive justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, how does this work? Why is it called the blessing of Abraham? Let's go back to the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 12. I want to trace this through the Old Testament. One of the things I recommend that you do when you're engaged in a Bible study, I like to do this. If I go to Genesis 12 and I'm going to study out some issues, then what I'll do is in the margin, here's the verse like this. In the margin, I will put out uh, a corollary passage. For example, by Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I would put down Genesis 13, 14 to 17. And then I would go there, when we go there, I'll put out in the margin next to it, Genesis 15. And then I'll put out in the margin next to that, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22, 15 through 18. Now we're going to look at several, not all of those passages, but several of them this morning to understand the dynamics here. Now the Lord said to Abram, verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So the first thing we see here is that God is promising Abraham, or Abram at this point, he's not Abraham yet, he's promising him a specific piece of real estate. He's going to give him land. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So he is promising him descendants. To this man who to this point in time has not had any children. So he is being promised descendants. And third, and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just your immediate descendants but all families will be blessed. So the third provision is blessing. This is the subject we're dealing with in Galatians chapter 3. So this is the first hint of this covenant that God is going to make with Abraham. So point one under the doctrine of the Abrahamic covenant is this. The Abrahamic covenant contained three promises. Or you might say one promise with three parts. First of all, a land. 
secondly, descendants, and third, blessings. This is found first in Genesis 12, then it's reaffirmed in Genesis 13. So turn the page to Genesis 13, and we'll look at verses 14 through 17. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, remember God told him initially to get away from all of his family and from Ur the Chaldees, and he only left most of his family. He took his father and he took his nephew Lot with him. Now finally God gets him to separate from Lot, so that now God is going to reaffirm these initial promises to Abram. And he says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants from ever, forever. So he reaffirms the land and he indicates that there are going to be descendants. And then in verse 16, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So we're seeing a little expansion. They're going to be innumerable. They're going to be like the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. So reaffirmation of the covenant there. And then it is finally ratified. Now in a covenant ceremony, turn over to chapter 15. In a covenant ceremony, it was very formal and very and its application was very rigid. This is a legal contract. This is a legal ceremony. Legally binding. Everything that God does with man is based upon the principle of law. That's an important thing to realize. Everything that God does in his relationship with man is built on the principle of law and legality. In Genesis chapter 15, God is going to ratify the covenant. Whenever two people made a covenant, they would always formalize it by a sacrifice. This is what takes place here. Look at verse 4. The word of the Lord came to Abram saying, after Abram had asked if the descendant, his descendant would go through his servant Eliezer, God says, this man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. So he is going to give a little more information here about the descendants. It's going to come from your own body. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. So there's a little expansion here on the descendant promise. Instead of being numbered like the dust of the earth, they are numbered like the stars of the sky. Almost innumerable. And we have the verse we referred to already, that he believed in the Lord. And that's poorly translated. It should be, he had already believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It looks back to his original salvation prior to Genesis 12. And he, verse 7, he, God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he, Abram, said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? In other words, Lord, what are you going to do that's going to give me an assurance that I'm going to possess it? What sign do you give me? So God said to him in verse 9, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And what happens is, in the next couple of verses, Abram brings all of these, kills them, splits them in half, and lays them out on the altar. And what would typically take place in a covenant-binding ceremony in the ancient world is the two covenant parties. Okay, remember, a covenant is a contract. It's a legally binding agreement between the party of the first part and the party of the second part. 
that's going to bind them, give, uh, oblige them to certain course of action. And normally what would happen is they would lay out, the, split the animals into lay them out, and then they would walk between them. Very solemn, formal ceremony. And at that point, they are both legally bound. It would, that would be called a bilateral, two people involved, a bilateral contract. Okay? What happens here, though, is in verse 12, is startling. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. God just anesthetizes him and knocks him out. And behold, terror and a great darkness fell upon him. He's going to be in the presence of the Lord. Verse 13, And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch. This is a symbolic of God. And he, it, that passes between the pieces. Does Abram walk between the pieces? No. Only God goes between the pieces, which means that God alone is obligated by the terms of the covenant. That means it is a one-sided covenant, also called a unilateral covenant. That means that it is, it may also be called an unconditional covenant. God is the one who has promised certain things and He has not conditioned it at all upon any actions on Abram's part. So this is the ratification ceremony of Genesis 15. And then the covenant is again restated in Genesis 17 and finally in Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. Let's turn over there. We'll skip Genesis 17 for now and just go to Genesis 22, 15 through 18. This is after the um, God's call, calling Abram to take Isaac up to the mountain to sacrifice him and God has provided a ram substitute, and in verse 15, the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, and incidentally that is translated only, only monogenes in the Greek of the Septuagint, your only begotten son, which foreshadows what Christ will be, as the only begotten Son of God. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And then look at verse 18. And in your seed, singular. That's the ver- this is the verse that Paul's going to quote in Galatians 3.16. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So once again, we see the, the restatement and reiteration of blessing to all nations based on the descendants of Abram, Abraham. So point number one, all of this is under point number one on the Abrahamic covenant, that there are three parts to it, a promise of land, a promise of descendants, and a promise of blessing. It's promised in Genesis 12 and 13. It's ratified in Genesis 15. And it is restated 
and reaffirmed in Genesis 17 and Genesis 22:15 through 18. Point number two. Under point number two, this same covenant is reaffirmed to Isaac, Abraham's son, and Jacob, Abraham's grandson. It is confirmed to Abraham, I mean to Isaac, in Genesis 26, verses 3 through 5. Let's turn over a couple of pages, about three or four pages, and read that. Genesis 26, 3 through 5. What I'm doing here is tracing for you a doctrine and its initial formulation in the Scripture so that you see where it comes from. This is critical to under any kind of doctrinal approach, any kind of doctrinal study. You always need to go back and look at the first two or three times the subject is mentioned in the Scriptures. Without that, you won't have the right foundation at all. So you have the covenant made with Abraham, and then it's confirmed to Isaac. Genesis 26, 3 through 5. Look at the terminology. Isaac is going back to the land, and, and God says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands. So here we have descendants and lands promised again. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And I will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, what? All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So what we have here is the same covenant is reestablished with Isaac in Genesis 26, 3 through 5. And then... With, it is again established with his son Jacob in Genesis 28. So let's turn over a couple of chapters to Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 through 15. Genesis 28, 13 through 15. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants also shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. Notice the same terminology that we've seen earlier with Abraham and Isaac. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, this covenant, established first with Abraham, reconfirmed with Isaac and with his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, is from this point on in Scripture referred to as the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is almost consistently referred to as not just the the covenant God made with Abraham, but the covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is as if, looking at it from the biblical perspective, it's initiated with Abraham and concluded with Jacob. That at this point, we have the, this is the establishment of the covenant between these three patriarchs, God and these three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Scripture on that would be Exodus 2.24, Exodus 6.8, Exodus 32.13, and 33.1. Also Deuteronomy 6.10, and then 2 Kings 13.33. So those passages all refer to the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Exodus 2.24, 6, 8, 32, 13, 33, 1, Deuteronomy 6, 10, and 2 Kings 13, 3. Okay, point number three. 
This is a definition. I've referred to it already. The definition of a covenant. A covenant is a legal contract or agreement between two parties which obligates one in in an unconditional covenant or both in a conditional covenant, one or both parties to a certain course of action or behavior. The legal contract or agreement between two parties which obligates one or both parties to a certain course of action or behavior. So you have you have the party of the first part and party of the second part. Now in the Abrahamic covenant in, in a in a bilateral covenant where two people were involved, both are obligated. In a unilateral covenant, only the party of the first part is obligated. That's God. He's promised something. And it's unconditional. Now, in the Abrahamic covenant, the two parties are God and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the two parties. Now, who receives the blessing? Who receives the blessing? Party of the first part is God. Party of the second part is Abraham. Who receives the blessing? All nations. There is a specific blessing for the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but through them, all nations will be blessed. Are the all nations the part, one of the two parties involved in the contract? This is fundamental, and I'm just building this slowly but surely because we have to build our case before we can see the truth of Scripture. Who are the two parties to the contract? God and Abraham. Are the Gentiles a party to the contract? No. They are, though, recipients of the benefits, the blessings of the covenant. Let's go to point four for a little isagogical background. Isagogics is the study of historical backgrounds to understand and illuminate the Scriptures. Remember, that one of the basic principles of interpretation is that all Scripture needs to be interpreted in the light of the times in which it was written. And biblical covenants are expressed in the legal contract forms and vocabulary of their day. Just as today, you go down, you can go down to uh, Staples or Office Depot or any of those places and you can buy what they call boilerplate legal forms. Wills, real estate contracts, all kinds of different, different contracts and just fill in the blanks with the names and dates and different things like that. But every contract has certain forms. There's certain things that characterize it. That's always been true with, with all kinds of literature. You can look at a piece of literature and you can tell me right off the top of your head whether it's poetry or whether it's a legal document. You don't have any trouble telling the difference, do you? Because you know that certain things characterize poetry. It's written in a stanza form, often it rhymes, and it's short, whereas legalese has a very technical vocabulary. It's hard to read, hard to understand, and you know the difference. Well, everything, you know the difference between a novel and the difference between a historical book. Every piece of literature has a certain kind of form, and the same is true in Scripture. The biblical covenants are almost exclusively modeled on a Hittite form called the suzerain... That's a technical word for an overlord or king. A suzerain vassal treaty form. The interesting thing is there were about five basic characteristics and organizations to a suzerainty vassal treaty, and that's the outline for the book of Deuteronomy. Now, this particular treaty form dominated uh, culture from about the end of the third millennium A.D. 
I mean B.C., about 2,100 B.C., up through about 1,500 B.C. And so this is just another illustration that when the Bible claims that these things took place in this historical time period, 1,500 B.C. to 2,000 B.C., that it fits. Because the literature, the way the, the literature is written, the forms in which it is written, fits the literature of that time period. And if it had been written, as the liberals claim, 500 years later, they would have known about this document form. It was lost by that time, and they were writing things a different way. So this just kind of gives us a little um, uh, encouragement that the Scripture is exactly what it claims to be, just another form of evidence that the Bible is exactly what it claims to be. Now, normally what would happen in the ancient world is the overlord or the king would establish a contract with his vassal. And he would say, if you do certain things, if you're obedient to me and do this, 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 and this, then as a result of that, I will bless you and provide certain things for your benefit. But if you don't do those things, then I will curse you. Now, that's what we find at the end of Deuteronomy is a list of blessings and cursing, which is the last thing in a suzerain treaty vassal form. Now, what would then happen is if this vassal were truly obedient and had done great benefit for his Lord, then the great king would come along and reward him for his obedience. And so the great king would then make what is called a royal grant. He would make a free gift to that individual. And interestingly enough, the Abrahamic covenant fits the pattern of a royal grant, which tells us, see, a royal grant, a Susan Vassal Treaty was based on certain conditions. I will bless you if you do this. The royal grant is because you've done these things, i.e. in the case of Abraham, because you're a believer and because you possess perfect righteousness, I am going to give you a free gift. That's called grace. Unconditional. In other words, there's nothing that Abraham or his descendants have to do in order to benefit. God has unconditionally promised land, seed, and blessing to all the nations of the earth because of Abraham and not based on their obedience. So, point number four is that biblical covenants are expressed in legal contract forms. The Susan Vassal Treaty form was a conditional form and the royal grant was an unconditional form given, an unconditional grant given to a subject to honor his loyalty. Point number five, this fits the pattern that Abraham had already been saved before he left Ur of the Chaldees, and he had been faithful to God, and the grant in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, was a free, unconditional gift binding only on God. It was a free gift binding only upon God. So the, the Abrahamic covenant, the free gift. Point number six, the Suzerain Vassal Treaty is a bilateral covenant. The Suzerain Vassal Treaty is a bilateral covenant which imposed binding obligations on both parties. The vassal did what he was supposed to do, then he would be blessed. If he failed, then he would be cursed. Point number seven, the Royal Grant Treaty is unilateral and binds only the sovereign. Only the, 
the Lord or the king is bound by the conditions of the royal grant. That's what we see in Genesis 15. Only God passes between the sacrifices. Point number eight. Royal grant treaties were extremely rare and were always formalized in a solemn ceremony of great import. That's the picture we see in Genesis chapter 15. Now, point number nine, back to the three elements. The three elements of the original covenant are then expanded in later covenants of contracts. So we have three parts. We have the promise of a land, promise of descendants, and promise of universal blessing. The land provision is further expanded in Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30. The descendant provision is further expanded in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And third, excuse me, that should be Second Samuel chapter 7. And third, the blessing, the universal blessing, is further developed by what is called the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31, 27 to 37, and Ezekiel 36, 22 to 32. Now, having gone, what some would say is the long way around the barn, we've established very clearly and precisely what the Old Testament says to get to our subject, which is the New Covenant. Now, why is this important? It is important because the Greek term for New Covenant is kine diatheke. And that is erroneously translated by this phrase, New Testament. The New Testament is literally called the New Covenant. What did Jesus say when he went the night before he went to the cross? He took the cup and he said, This is the New Covenant of my blood. So if you are going to understand the significance of what takes place at the Lord's table, which we celebrate every week, I mean every month, and if you're going to understand the significance of what Jesus is saying there and why he went to the cross, it all goes back to understanding this concept of the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, which is based on the Abrahamic Covenant in, in first delineated in Genesis. So, that brings us to point number 10. In the Abrahamic Covenant, we're going to wrap it up here on this part. In the Abrahamic Covenant, God is party of the first part. Okay. Let's make this really clear. God is here. He's party of the first part. Over here, party of the second part, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, the Israelites. Party of the first part, party of the second part. The covenant is not made with Gentiles. The Gentiles receive the benefit and blessing from the covenant. In the Old Testament, you have people like Naaman the Syrian 
Ruth the Moabitess, I believe Nebuchadnezzar, all of the Ninevites who responded to the gospel presentation of Jonah, all became believers and are blessed by virtue of the Abrahamic covenant. They're not parties to the covenant. They're not party to the second part, but Gentiles receive the blessing. They are saved. Now, conclusion, point number 11, conclusion. The blessing of Abraham that we find in, in uh, Galatians 3.14 is a technical phrase related to this third provision of the Abrahamic covenant and the promised blessing to the Gentiles. And this is why Paul, talking to these Galatian Gentiles, goes back to the Abrahamic covenant because he is saying justification by faith alone comes from Paragraph 3 of the Abrahamic Covenant, which promises universal blessing, blessing to all families. And that is defined in context as salvation in terms of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So this concept of blessing then is further expanded in the Old Testament through the New Covenant. So now we're going to look at the doctrine of the New Covenant. Point number one in the doctrine of the New Covenant. The New Covenant anticipates and promises a future nation Israel that is reunited, restored, and mostly regenerate. The New Covenant anticipates and promises a future nation Israel that is reunited, restored, and mostly regenerate. Turn with me to to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. There are two key passages that we're going to look at for the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 31, and Ezekiel chapter 36. In Jeremiah 31, we read, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay, let's stop right there. What's a covenant? A covenant is a legally binding contract between two parties. Party of the first part, party of the second part. Who is the party of the first part in the New Covenant? God. Who is the party of the second part? The house of Israel? The house of Judah? What? Israel and the house of Judah. No one else is mentioned in this passage. I will make a contract, says the Lord, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the contract, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, in the day I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Now, what contract was that? That's the Mosaic Law. So the New Covenant is going to replace the Mosaic Law. It's going to be a permanent contract, whereas right there we learned that the Mosaic Law was temporary. It was temporary. It was conditional. I will bring them out. Of, uh, I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Point number two is that the new covenant specifically states that the covenant partners are Yahweh, the Lord, the party of the first part, and Israel and Judah, party of the second part. Point number three, I want to state the obvious. The covenant promises are not made to any other people or nation. 
The covenant promises are not made to any other people or nation. Point number four. What are the provisions of the new covenant? There are 13 delineated provisions to the new covenant. Let's take them one at a time. A, every believer has an internal knowledge of the Word of God without needing to be taught. This we see in verses 33 and 34. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, an internal knowledge of the law, and on their heart that is in their mind, I will write it, and I will be their God, they shall be my people, and they shall not teach again. That can only indicate that there's no need for to have instruction in the Word of God because it's already implanted in the mind, in the soul. They shall not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother. Now that has not taken place yet. That would put me out of a job. B. Each believer has a personal relationship with God. Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my, I will be their God and they shall be my people. C. Each believer has a comprehensive knowledge of God. Again in verse 33. B. Each believer has complete forgiveness of sin. Verse 34. Remember, in the Old Testament, it's only provisional. It looks forward to the coming of Christ. So this talks about how it's being complete. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Verse 34. E. There is the promise of a continuous existence of the nation Israel. This is found in verses 35 through 37. A continuous existence of the nation Israel. It would not go out under discipline again. F. Jerusalem will be rebuilt and never again destroyed. This is indicated in verses 38 through 40. Jerusalem would be rebuilt and never again destroyed. Verses 38 through 40. Now let's leave Jeremiah and turn over a couple of books to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24. Ezekiel 36, 24. This is G. There will be a regathering and restoration of regenerate Israel to the promised land. Now today they're living in what's called the diaspora, the dispersion. Jews are scattered in every country throughout the world. There will be a regathering and restoration. Verse 24, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. H. There will be a cleansing from sin. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is the water and the Spirit referred to by Jesus in His discussion with Nicodemus in John 3, 5. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And then we come to I. There will be a new heart. That is, there will be a renovated mind. Remember the word heart always refers to the mentality of the soul. There will be a renovated mind on the basis of what we saw in Jeremiah 31, which is that the law is implanted on their heart already. There will be given a new heart that has the law planted in them, 36. 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Uh, J, there's going to be the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
in verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So that leads us, J is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, verse 27. K is divine motivation and capacity for obedience, 36.27. L, there will be material productivity and economic prosperity, 36.29-30 and 34.35. Where God says, I will, in verse 30, I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field that you may not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. And then this is further expanded on. Economic prosperity and productivity. And then finally, M, there will be population expansion, uh, 36, uh, 37, and 38. <coughs> so, all of that is what God promises with the New Covenant. I went through that list in detail because I want to impress upon you what God promises with the New Covenant. Now, let me ask you a simple question. Is that in effect today? Obviously not. It is not in effect today. So the New Covenant, the implication after looking at all of the promises and provisions of the the New Covenant, that it is not in effect today. So it is not yet fulfilled. Well, point number five, the only aspect of this promise that has any form of existence today is what? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the only aspect, the only thing in all of this list that has any form of expression today. Notice I'm not saying fulfillment. I'm using the word expression. That's the only similarity between that list and what is taking place today. Now, let's turn back to, having said that, let's turn back to our passage in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, we've seen that as paragraph 3 of the Abrahamic covenant, which is further defined in the new covenant. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. See, the only thing that we as the church age benefit from and that whole list of provisions is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit which becomes the basis the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and empowered through the filling of the Holy Spirit becomes the basis for what? For the unique spiritual life of the church age. So, Paul very carefully going back and you know, one thing that should impress you is that he's talking to these Gentile Galatians and he's assuming that they know everything I've spent the last hour teaching you about the Abrahamic covenant. What does that tell you? That ought to tell you, number one, that Paul spent a lot of time teaching them these concepts when they were there. Number two, they understood all of these doctrines, so he just has to mention it in a very cursory manner and they know what he's talking about. You can't understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. And they have a comprehension of the Old Testament, at least enough for him to make these points. So we'll go on next Sunday. We've got to end now. Our time's about up. And we'll come back and look at just how the new covenant relates to the church age. That's very important. We've laid the foundation in explaining all of these passages this morning. We really should go on and finish it, but we just don't have time. 
but remember this, hold that thought, keep it in your minds until next Sunday first hour. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time that we have to look at your word and to see how these things hold together throughout all the pages of Scripture from the earliest days, the time of Abraham, all the way through. The themes run consistently. There's no contradiction. There's no error. There's no diversion. Everything works and fits together in an integrated whole. Father, that builds and supports our confidence in your Scriptures and in your Word. We know that thy Word is truth and that we are sanctified only by means of your truth. Now, Father, as we go throughout this week, we pray that we might remember your faithfulness to us as it was to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.